ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Call it the great plunder, call it tech companies pushing the limits of what's acceptable, call it just trying it on and seeing what you can get away with. What a lot of people don't realise about the advances made in artificial intelligence this last year or so, the creation of large language models like ChatGPT and its successes, is that they're trained on large data sets made up of other people's content. Data that companies like OpenAI use without permission. And today on Future Tense, artist advocate and copyright specialist Neil Turkowitz is here to help explain how they get away with it. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. So that's the question. How do they get away with it? Well, it stems from this notion that if copyright is an impediment to the development of a technology and they believe that this technology is somehow both extraordinary and brings benefits to the world, then they view copyright and artist rights as a speed bump, something that we shouldn't be bothered with. It's certainly not something that should stand in the way of the development of these models. Now, help us try to understand this, because if I copied an article, say, that you had written, and if I then claimed it as my own, that would be plagiarism. You know, we we would call that straight out theft. Why is there so much reluctance to call out what the major tech companies are doing? Why don't we talk about it as theft? A lot of us do talk about it as theft, but I think the general perception is these are systems that while they start the process of training the models with a copy of an existing work, they then modify that in both the structure of the way that they retain that within the AA model and with respect to the output. So... From a technological perspective, there's this argument, this is more akin to learning than it is to copying, even though there is a technical copy. So that the fact that there's a technical copy, again, shouldn't interfere with the development of technologies. There's enough obfuscation and there's enough smoke around this so that people have a hard time picking out the signal. But in the end, they're using other people's intellectual property, other people's creativity, their output, aren't they, without permission. Absolutely. And they use it to develop a commercial product. And this is a key thing that a lot of people don't focus on is not only do they use artists' works to create a commercial product, but they use it to create a commercial product that's then going to compete directly in the same marketplace as the original creators. So we're looking at a massive kind of displacement of human creators in favor of AI systems. Which is why major production houses like Disney and many news organisations like CNN and The New York Times are now attempting to block OpenAI's web crawler from trawling through their sites and accessing their material. And it's why Booker Prize winning author Richard Flanagan calls what's happening the biggest act of copyright theft in history. But as Neil Turkowitz points out, the blatant theft of intellectual property goes back way before OpenAI and ChatGPT. In fact, it's been part of standard tech company business for a very long time indeed. It was really championed first and foremost by Google. So Google 
took infringement and made it part of a religion of technological development. And they even referred to it as efficient infringement. And their position was that if infringement was necessary for the creation of products and services that ultimately produced value, then those should not be employed to impede such development. So they went beyond sort of the early 2000s, Napster and Grokster and and others, who similarly thought that copyright shouldn't be an impediment to to their services, but they didn't surround that with a ideology that actually supported the notion that infringement can be a net social benefit, which is really a terrifying concept. And you, so you start with where Google was, sort of coming out of the P2P file sharing mentalities and then cultivating that into becoming one of the most profitable companies and the most dominant companies in the world. And it gives you a sense of how dominant this idea is and the ability of those behind it to socialize that idea. Now, terrifying, as you say, this idea of progress demands that we should forgo consent. But there is a public feeling that says these products are good. People like them, don't they? How does that complicate the equation? Yeah, well, it certainly complicates it. And it's clear that products like ChatGPT and Dolly and they are engineering marvels, right? It is an extraordinary development. The issue is, should we allow things that are extraordinary from a technological standpoint to erode, as you say, both the underlying notion of consent and at the same time to erode the conditions for human creativity so that the price we pay is a future one, which is hard for people to then understand and in balance appropriately against the present value but we're paying a price and we're paying a huge price. And that price isn't just one of creatives. It's of the world that's defined by a handful of companies, not informed by communities of people of color, not informed by communities around the world. And they're going to define the rules of the future society. That's now extraordinarily terrifying. And if we accept that as a society, that says something about us as well, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people have a tendency to focus on leaders, including whether those are political leaders, commercial leaders. But the reality is, is that we're all implicated. Each of us having some impact on how things are developing, whether we use them, whether we speak out against them, whether we use our voices to challenge theft. So yes, it does very much implicate all of us. And I hope that One of the things that I do in my writing is to try to not focus so much on the legal issues, but to get people to think about and to identify with their better angels. What world do we want? And are we really prepared to turn over so much of our free will to these handful of companies? In terms of what can be done to make sure that these companies don't continue to grow rich on the work of others, you talk about what you call machine unlearning and algorithmic disgorgement. Could I get you to explain those terms to us? One of the things that comes up a lot is that apologists for the present system say, hey, it's already too late. Genie's out of the bottle. These systems are already trained. We can stop future training if that's really what happens, but it's still not going to change anything because these models are already out there. Well, the reality is, is that governments like the US government and the FTC in particular, which has already used its authority, 
can order companies to disgorge AI models based on misappropriated training data. So the fact that they're out there doesn't really mean much. On With respect to open systems, it's a little bit harder, but algorithmic disgorgement is a very powerful remedy. It's already been employed by the Federal Trade Commission in the United States, and we can, if we have the will to do so, claw back and stop the current practices and introduce a new system based on consent and not stopping technology. We should allow technology to develop, but that technology should be based only on consent, where artists agree to have their materials used in training data and they reach whatever agreements they want to reach with AI systems. That's perfect. We can have both things. We don't have to cut off technology. And most artists, and and I speak to a lot of artists every day, Artists aren't anti-technology. They use technology in their art. Silicon Valley and the apologists for the status quo like to say that this is really a battle of art versus technology, but it's not. It's about ethics versus the willingness to overrun consent. Now, a couple of weeks ago, the head of OpenAI, which created ChatGPT, announced that the company would pay the costs incurred by anyone using their product if they face legal claims around copyright infringement. How big a blow is that to those creatives trying to ensure the integrity of their work? It's the final insult. So you have OpenAI building a model and a business valued at almost $90 billion, the value of which was all derives from original art, writing, and taken without authority. And now, after building this $90 billion business on the backs of conscripted labor, he then turns around and says, and by the way, if you're worried about this, don't worry, we will cover legal costs. It's you know, I, I just keep on, you just come back to these things. We live in a time, again, both politically, socially, and economically, of fairly terrifying things where a handful of people control the levers of power. And this is one of those moments where someone has the capacity and the power to exercise this terrible function and to promote the use of unauthorized services and to really get users completely used to this notion that it's acceptable. You know, it's interesting, I'm an optimist and I believe, and I always have believed, that we ultimately will prevail, that justice prevails in the long run, that ultimately people will come to understand the importance of safeguarding consent in all of its forms. I think it's going to be too late for current generations of creators. I don't know what happens to the arts world when it's so much money is sucked out of a system in which artists are already in such precarious economic position. My heart bleeds for them and they're going to pay for it. They're going to pay for the failures of all of us to have created the system that would have prevented this. But I do believe that ultimately we will prevail. Well, Neil Turkowitz, thank you very much for joining us on Future Tense. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much, Anthony. Now, over the years, we've done quite a lot on how we build 
and how we can build better. We've looked at materials, at attitudes towards creating more efficient housing, at resilience, at standards, and at a multitude of construction-related innovations. Today, we're going to hear about an international approach that brings all of those things together. It's called the Living Building Challenge, and its representative down under is Laura Hamilton-O'Hara, CEO of Australia's Living Future Institute. So the idea came originally from an architect over in the west coast of America called Jason McClellan. He's a a self-proclaimed troublemaker. And his thought process was, you know, if you think about the construction code and how we think about sustainability, it's very much incrementally less bad every year if we're lucky. But what if we just started from a blank slate and thought about what does good look like instead and started from that point. And so the Living Building Challenge was born. And its premise is that basically every act of design and construction can make the world a better place. And if you just think about, I suppose, if you look around whatever room you're in right now, the materials that are in that room, how they got there, what they're made of, what were the working conditions like of the people who made them, how was the building constructed, what companies were used, where does that material go to end of life? All of those are quite significant opportunities to create positive impact. And so really, the Living Building Challenge is is a leverage tool to make the world better, to to create positive impact. And what does it tell us about the national and international sustainable building standards that are already in place? Are they deficient? I would say we work very much in an ecosystem and they all sort of do different things. I think the National Construction Code, there's always room for improvement and it really is sort of that baseline level and they, you know, ratchet it up um, every couple of years. There are other standards that do different things to us. Where we position ourselves is at the very much the leading edge, what we call regenerative design. So it's not sustainability. It's instead of that kind of incrementally less bad, it's how do you make everything good? How do you actually leave it better than you found it? And so it's trying to do something slightly different. Not every building is going to be a living building. It's it's really hard. It's the, you know, the gold standard flag on a hill in terms of buildings. But the intent behind it is that every building then benefits from those projects that are living buildings. And a good example of that is living buildings have to specify materials that are safe for all species throughout time. As they ask the questions of manufacturers, what's in your materials, and the manufacturers learn, those materials are then available to anybody to use. So we all benefit from the fact that there's been these really leading projects. So does that mean that any kind of building material that could be seen to be toxic can't be included in a building design if they want to be part of this living building challenge? So we've got something called the Red List, and it's a list of chemicals that are commonly found in the built environment that have been found to be harmful. We use the precautionary principle, which means we don't wait for legislation to come into force before we act and put it on the red list. If there's scientific proof, then it's on the red list. And the reason why that is, I think asbestos is a great example. The first scientific evidence that asbestos was going to be a significant problem to human health came in the 40s. Australia didn't have a nationwide ban on asbestos until the early 2000s. So we lost almost 60 years where we could have taken action and prevented a lot of really harmful things happening to people every day. And so we use that same principle, but applied to things like formaldehyde, for example, or lead, things that you would be actually quite shocked to find in a lot of products. Living buildings can't have those red list chemicals in. And really, we aim for 90% red list free. 
you have to aim for 100 and kind of account for there's going to be some mistakes here and there, but 90% is the goal. So that doesn't mean that all plastics or all composite materials, building materials, they're not automatically ruled out? No, you'd, you'd have to have a look at what's called the CAS list, so a list of the chemical numbers and really have a look at your ingredients. So I think, you know, given that we spend 75% of our life, if not more, indoors, the built environment has significant impacts on our health. And so I think we deserve to know what's in it and also deserve to work and live and play in buildings that are actually, in fact, not have less chance of causing you cancer or ill health, but no chance. And I think that's, you know, that seems like a really fair ask. There's seven basic requirements, or you'd call them petals, for certification. Could I get you to briefly to take us through those? We really like to lean in on the sort of natural metaphors. The Living Building Challenge is based around a flower, and that's its emblem. And the idea is that a flower is really suited to place, to climate. It collects all its own water, doesn't cause pollution, is able to generate its own energy, is beautiful, and anyone can look at it. And what if we could build buildings as efficient and effective and, and beautiful as a simple flower. So building on that metaphor, we've got seven petals and some of them will be pretty expected in terms of sustainability. So things like water and energy. And the ask there is to generate all or collect all your own water on site and treat it and be part of the hydrological cycle instead of kind of using it, making it dirty and then, you know, letting it run off. In terms of energy, it's generates all the energy required for that building on site using renewables only, no combustion, and accounting for your embodied carbon. Then there's also materials. And materials is historically one of the most difficult petals, and it asks you to build with materials that are safe for all species throughout time. Then we've got four other petals that are quite, I think, quite special and unique to Living Building Challenge. One of them is place, and that's thinking about should we actually even build here in the first place? And if the answer is yes, how do we make the place better than we found it? Then we've got health and happiness, which is around access to nature, access to daylight, access to fresh air. Humans are just really more complicated plants. So how do we kind of have all of those really basic things that help us thrive? And then there's also equity. So equity is about how do we build buildings that are equitably accessible for people is one part of it. But the other part of it is how do we use the fact that we're building this building and the spending and procurement are required to build any project to further sort of social justice and equity within the built environment industry? So, you know, thinking about who's your builder, who's your engineer, who's your architect, and do they believe in similar social justice principles and, and, and preferring those that actually are doing some good work there? And then finally is the beauty petal, which is perhaps the one we get the most questions about. So... How do you design with love of life at the heart of things? When buildings are beautiful and loved by the community, they're looked after and they're around for a long time, which means their embodied carbon is reduced as well. So there's also this really important kind of hard reason why beauty is part of the Living Building Challenge. So these are all considerations, or, or many of them are considerations, that we don't normally tend to associate with the building and construction industry. Is this a particularly difficult certification to attain? Yeah, it is certainly known as the world's most stringent sustainability standards. So yes, it is. Globally, there are 32 buildings that have achieved absolutely everything. There is one building in Australia called the Sustainable Buildings Research Centre at the University of Wollongong, and they were pioneers, right? And if you're going to call yourself the Sustainable Buildings Research Centre and attract some of the brightest sort of minds in, in research, you want to have the best building in terms of sustainability. So they did it. 
Another building that is well on its way and has already achieved partial certification, we call it petal certification, is the Burwood Brickworks project in East in Melbourne. It was developed by Fraser's Property Australia and it is a 45-tenanted shop, urban shopping centre, just your neighbourhood shopping centre. So the intent behind that was how do we build a very ordinary typology but in an extraordinary way? And that building, because Living Building Challenge is a whole building tool, Woolworths went through the challenge, Dan Murphy's went through the challenge, Ben and Jerry's went through the challenge, Reading Cinema went through the challenge, and they learned a whole lot of stuff around what good looks like in terms of materials and energy and water. Phrases are a development organization. They didn't do it out of the goodness of their heart. There was a real commercial reason for it. And I think if you do it smartly and, and do it as soon as you, as early as you can in the process, it will generate value for decades to come. Laura Hamilton O'Hara from the Living Future Institute. Finally today, to a new report on domestic violence funded by the Winston Churchill Trust and put together by Churchill Fellow and New South Wales Police Superintendent Andrew Hurst. It draws on the experiences of authorities and communities in Canada, the UK and the United States. And it argues for a much more proactive and forward-looking approach in dealing with family and intimate partner violence. To discuss the report and its recommendations, I'm joined now by Chris Boyle from the organisation Stand By You. Welcome, Chris. Thanks so much for having me. This report calls for a more preventative approach to domestic and family violence. But before we get into the details of that, what's the main problem with the way this issue has traditionally been handled in Australia? The biggest problem seems to be that we haven't moved away from what 40 years of lobbying for policymakers has been around, and that's arresting our way out of this really wicked social complex issues. Well, we know that that doesn't work and it comes at the cost of things that do work, you know, more preventative community-led responses. Families out there experiencing violence, those women, those children, those families who don't have peace of mind, are really worried about systems responses, which are traditionally highlighted by arresting, reporting and removing, particularly of kids. So this separation and, and sending people into that funnel of police and courts, we need to move away from that if we're really serious about preventing violence. And the figures for how many people are affected by domestic violence or intimate partner violence, as it's also called, they're quite extraordinary, aren't they? We're we're talking about one in four women say that they've experienced it in some form or other, and it's even worse for people in the Indigenous community. It's horrific. And in Andrew's report, he actually brings that to a a level where people can understand that if you go to your kid's school and and you go through the classroom and, and you pick out one in four of those girls who are going to experience violence. I mean, that's just horrific. We need to put faces to these names, you know. Too many women are dying every week and children being left motherless. And until we start to really feel that we can play a role in preventing, it just becomes a bit of noise that people really have to switch off because it becomes so traumatising, the complexity and the enormity of this problem. With this report, there's a call for a greater focus on the perpetrators of domestic violence, preventing them from committing further violence. What sort of interventions are possible there? There are some traditionally men's behaviour change type programs which work with people often after they've been through a court system there. We're looking to really do, and and Andrew highlights in his report, is more sort of proactive and wraparound preventative from not just like a a behavioural change or from a particular department, but multi-services. What we know is abuse and violence is more likely to occur if we don't look at all the domains in people's lives, you know, economic stability, housing, employment, finances, 
good health, you know, physical, dental, mental education and vocation. A lot of people are still feeling the effects of financial stresses that increase risks around violence being perpetrated. But then other programs that are more targeted and more specific around trauma and violence and, you know, say alcohol or, or drug misuse. And the preventative side of this, so there's mention in the report almost of case management mm-hmm. of people who haven't yet committed a crime but are showing all the signs that they may well end up being perpetrators in the future. Yeah, engagement's really difficult and, and we need to make it as incentivising as possible. And, and when we go through a crime lens, I mean, that can be a useful trigger to use that authority that, that courts may have, but it doesn't necessarily lead in behaviour change because it comes from a very punitive lens. When we can make access to those types of programs more proactive and engages that person without the stigma attached, you know, it's understanding where people are at and and seeing people in the context of children, families, communities as a whole, not just isolating people and making it their problem to fix. It's very clear in the report that where there have been initiatives that have worked in dealing with this issue of domestic and, and family violence, it's it's been where there's greater collaboration going on between different agencies. Yeah, that collaborative response, it, it's not foreign and it's not, you know, sort of controversial at all. It's understood that it works. It's bringing people from an eclectic range of professions because having expertise in certain areas that understand, you know, trauma, that understand policing responses, that understand access to housing or resources, bringing people together to do their piece, it's like that cog wheel. You know, you need every tooth functioning in order for things to move. So there are some programs and what they do is when it works in an area, they've got the courage to scale that as well and try that initiative in other areas because communities are unique. So communities have to have a way in how they shape that and design that. And when we listen to communities, they'll tell us what they need. And, you know, that wraparound service, that collaboration, those services play a part, but also communities and families can be a really important part to that as well. The report points out that the traditional adversarial approach that's adopted in particularly Anglo-Saxon courtrooms, in the Anglo-Saxon legal system, that it can be detrimental when dealing with domestic violence issues. And there's a call in there for what are called specialist courts, which have operated in other countries, I think, particularly in Canada. Does that fit with your understanding of the issue? Yeah, absolutely. One of the most important things that we can do from a helping, you know, support lens is seek to understand. If we don't come with that knowledge and that curiosity about understanding why we're seeing symptoms and try to unpack that, all we're going to do, as Andrew and his experience as a police officer for many years, is bounce from incident to incident to incident, just seeing symptoms. If we come in with a lens of understanding, and specialist courts seek to understand, they seek to understand all of those sort of things that are happening and address causal factors not just symptoms, because it's ineffective in that punitive lens to address violence and certainly address it in a way that we want to prevent. Just a final question. Andrew Hurst, who's the author of this report, he's a superintendent with New South Wales Police. He was given permission to take on a a Churchill Fellowship and do this research. He travelled to three countries, spoke with authorities in those countries and more than 100 people in different sectors and in, in different roles. He came back to Australia and for some reason, they won't tell us why, but New South Wales Police have refused him permission to actually talk on this issue. Mm. What does that say to you? It says to me that the status quo is really hard to break. It it seems that there's 
more perhaps priority on message management than transparency. And I think it's as a proxy for Andrew, asked by the trust to, to speak on his behalf. I hope I do him justice in his reports, but unless we're really to be open and transparent and challenge the status quo that sits behind closed doors and decision-making, we're not going to see the change that women and children and families need from this sector. Well, Chris Boyle, thank you very much for coming in. Thanks so much for having me. And Chris is the Executive Director of the Stand By You Foundation. The report we've just been talking about, put together by New South Wales Police Superintendent Andrew Hurst, is publicly available if you want to read it in full. Just go to the Future Tense website and there you'll find a link. Well, this is our last program in the 2023 series. We're taking a short break over the Christmas New Year period and we'll be back again in late January with a whole new slate of shows. But we won't be disappearing entirely. Over the next five weeks, you'll have the chance to listen again to some of our most popular episodes from the last 12 months. A big thanks to co-producer and co-creator Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Take care. Stay safe. Cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.